Michael Reeves, in his book, Rejoicing Christ, opens with this paragraph. He says, Jesus Christ, God's perfect Son, is the beloved of the Father, the song of angels, the logic of creation, the great mystery of godliness, the bottomless spring of life, comfort, and joy. We were made to find our satisfaction, our hearts rest in him. He reveals such an unexpectedly kind God. He makes, defines, and is the good news. And he not only gives shape to, but is himself the shape of the Christian life. Our chapter that we're going to be considering this evening is titled, Of Christ the Mediator. We just recently bought a season pass to Six Flags for my kids. Kathy's in school, so we don't have a whole lot of vacation time coming up. And so, but we do have some Six Flags time coming up, and I love roller coasters. I imagine many of you love roller coasters, some of you maybe not. And you remember the beginning part of the giant roller coasters when it is just cranking you up higher and higher and higher and higher before you reach the top and it just plummets you into the rest of the coaster. The first seven chapters of the confession are kind of like the cranking upwards in a roller coaster. It is slowly cranking you higher and higher and higher and it's doing lots of work until it gets now to paragraph 8 on the doctrine of Christ, the mediator. It's here that we reach the apex in the turn. It's here that we reach the pinnacle of the confession and everything else is a drop into the benefits and the blessings of salvation as we consider justification and adoption and sanctification and all the things that those of us who have been Christians for any amount of time come to love and to treasure in Christ. It springs us downhill into exploring our freedom in Christ as well as his goodness and his law. And so chapter 8 is, in a sense, a hinge to the rest of the confession. If chapter 7 is introducing the covenant whereby God relates to sinners and saves us, then chapter 8 introduces us to the mediator by which all of those covenant blessings, which are explored in the subsequent chapters to come, the covenant mediator, the man Jesus Christ, through whom we enjoy all of those blessings. And so it is indeed a glorious paragraph. And there are some things that for some of us will be alien and new. There's going to be other things that will be comforting and familiar, warm and inviting. I hope by the end of our time, it'll be altogether edifying as it helps us to think better about the scriptures and about the doctrine of Christ. I told you one of the benefits of a good confession is that it reaches back beyond itself and it, it resources itself with what Christians have historically confessed and believed. This is one such chapter. We're going to see language taken directly from Nicaea, language taken directly from Chalcedon, because the writers of the confession are, 
are, are specifically concerned to show that they're not novel in their views of Christ. Like many of the heretics of their day, they're not making this up, but they're just saying what Christians through the centuries have always confessed the scriptures to teach concerning Christ the mediator. There's 10 paragraphs, 10 paragraphs that I hope to cover in about 30 minutes. And I think we're going to be able to do it. And so just hang with me. We're going to see five things, 10 paragraphs divided up into five main categories. We're going to see in paragraph one, an introductory paragraph on the ordination of the mediator, that he's ordained for a specific work. Secondly, in paragraph two, we're going to see the identity of a mediator. Who is he? And specifically, it's going to address his distinct natures in one person. Paragraph three is going to talk about the suitability or the qualifications of the mediator. We're also going to consider in paragraphs four through eight the work of the mediator, specifically his work accomplished, accepted, anticipated, attributed, and applied. Oh, that's sweet. And then finally, in paragraphs 10, 9, and 10, we're going to consider the office of the mediator, his threefold office, prophet, priest, and king. And I mean this only by way of introduction. If there's places that we need to deep dive a little bit more in our discussion, then we can do that, or we can have further conversation at another time. Consider paragraph one. Read along with me. It pleased God in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, his only begotten son, according to the covenant made between them both to be mediator between God and man, the prophet, priest, and king, head and savior of the church, the heir of all things and the judge of the world, unto whom he did from all eternity give a people to be a seed and to be by him in time redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. The connection between Article 7 and Article 8 cannot be overstated. Chapter 8, which we're looking at tonight, completes Chapter 7. Chapter 7 finds its further articulation in Chapter 8, and then Chapter 8 is what sets us up for all the glorious benefits and blessings of salvation that are articulated in the chapters to come. And so it is in a very real sense, as I said earlier, a hinge chapter. And specifically here, we see two important things. We see, first of all, Christ's appointment, the appointment of the Son of God to be a mediator for God's elect. And we see it articulated here in the language of the covenant of redemption. Now, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on that because I've already explained that in multiple other places and multiple other times. But it's specifically talking about that pre-temporal covenant between the Father and the Son, whereby the Father will give the Son a people if the Son obeys the Father and willingly fulfills the terms of the covenant, namely becoming incarnate, living a perfect life of obedience, dying a substitutionary death, and being raised again as a reward. That he will see, Isaiah says, Isaiah 53, he will see his offspring. Indeed he will. And so the covenant of redemption is the foundation for what we understand about the person and the work of Christ. But we see secondly in the context of this covenant, the work that he has covenanted to do is in the occupation of an office, a mediating office. And it's a threefold office, specifically holding the offices of prophet, priest, and 
king. And it's going to be in that threefold office that Jesus Christ is going to be understood by who he is and what he does, and it's all by the design of God. And what does he do? Well, it says there at the end of paragraph one, he redeems, calls, justifies, sanctifies, and glorifies. See also the table of contents for the chapters to follow. So paragraph one is an introduction, introducing us with familiar language that's already been used previously in the confession, summarizing what the scriptures teach concerning the eternal purpose of God in Christ. But then in paragraph two, we're going to see the identity of the mediator. It reads, the Son of God, the second person in Holy Trinity, being very and eternal God, the brightness of the Father's glory, of one substance and equal with him, who made the world, who upholds it and governs all things he has made, did when the fullness of time was complete, take upon him man's nature, with all the essential properties and common infirmities of it, yet without sin. Being conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, the Holy Spirit coming down upon her, and the power of the Most High overshadowing her. And so is made of a woman of the tribe of Judah, of the seed of Abraham, and David according to the Scriptures. So that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion. Which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. Let me summarize what's going on here. We're going to see two things. First of all, we're going to see that Christ has two distinct natures. He is on the one hand fully God, and we confess that he is, on the other hand, fully man. We see that in the language here. Notice, concerning his being fully or truly or very God, we see three things. We see, first of all, his personal identity, that he is, quote, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. We see that just a repetition of chapter 2, paragraph 3, on God's triune nature. But we see secondly, also, concerning his being fully God, his divine nature, that he is, quote, very and eternal God, picking up on that language from the, from the nature of God in chapter 2. That he's not just a little sliver of God, he is the very and eternal God. All that is in God is God, and all that is God is in Christ, according to his divinity. And then thirdly and finally, we see his creative power recalling the truths that were summarized in chapter 4. It is he who made the world. And so this threefold statement at the beginning of paragraph 2 concerning his divinity recalls everything about God that we've seen prior to article 8, specifically in paragraph or chapters 2 on the doctrine of God, in chapters 4 on creation, chapter 5 on providence. But we also see there in the middle of the paragraph that he's not just fully or truly God, he's also fully man. And it is summarized by that phrase, do you see it there so well, by common infirmities. That phrase means that the Lord Jesus Christ, in assuming to himself uniting divine nature to human nature when in his incarnation, endured and experienced all of the realities that we face in this sin-cursed world. He suffered as we suffer. 
He tasted death just as you and I will die. He was tempted in every way that you and I are tempted in principle and yet without sin. We see in the Gospels how he hungered, he grew weary, that he wept, that he thirsted, and many more. That he was in every way truly man. He was not just God putting on man suit like Superman putting on Clark Kent. He is truly and fully man. That was the argument, wasn't it, of the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 2, that he had to become like us in every respect. But then it qualifies that he is fully man. But there's one way that he's not like us. It says here, quote, but sin is not present in him. And this shows us at least two things. It shows us on the one hand, as we'll see later on in the chapter, that he's qualified to be our mediator because he's our sinless savior. But it also shows us, gives us a glimpse into God's intention for true humanity. Humans can be glorified. Humans can be sinless. Humans don't need to be slaves to sin. That there is a glorious future that is held out for God's elect in Christ. And Christ gives us the vision for what that glorious future hope would be. We see in him our destiny as those who are in him. So he has two distinct natures. He is truly and fully God, and he is truly and fully man. But there at the end of paragraph two, we see that these two distinct natures are united in one person. It's not that he was fully God and then added humanity. You can't add anything to God. He has all things in himself. Rather, more technical language would be, more biblically faithful language would be, that his divine nature was united to a human nature, and yet without any, as we'll see here, conversion, composition, or confusion. All that technical language in the end of paragraph two, you say, I don't know what that means. That is language that is lifted directly from the Chalcedonian Creed. When it says that he is inseparably joined together, it's arguing against the error of Nestorianism, which wants to disunite Christ's two natures. When it says that it's without conversion, it's arguing against, as the Chalcedonian Creed, the error of uh, Eutychianism, which confounds the two natures and teaches the absorption of the human nature into the divine such that one can't be distinguished from the other. When it says without composition or confusion, it's against the error, the heresy of monophysitism. You don't have to remember any of these. There's no test. But that taught that there was only one composite nature emanating from the divine nature. But more importantly, down at the very bottom, the most important phrase, yet one Christ. Two natures, yet one person. Christ cannot be a mediator for mankind without the union of two natures in one person. That if we compromise the end of paragraph two then we lose everything in paragraph one. That if we lose the distinct natures united perfectly in one person, then we lose the gospel and we have no hope of salvation. And so what the Orthodox creeds, what the history of the church attempt to do in summarizing scripture, and what 
the Second London Confession is aiming to do by lifting the language directly from those creeds is to hold on to the mystery of the incarnation rather than sink into our own rational attempts to resolve it. Anytime we do that, it always leads to error. And so whether it's talking about God's triune nature or whether it's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ and his hypostatic union, we receive what is revealed by faith, gladly embracing those mysterious aspects, knowing that we're finite and God is infinite. And the minute that we try to figure it out, the minute that we try to to circumscribe it with our own reason that we end up drifting into one heresy or another and we lose the gospel altogether. No, by faith, we just receive what God has revealed in his word and the, and, the, and the confession summarizes it well. Well, moving on, paragraph three. We've seen already the ordination of the mediator. We've seen the identity of the mediator. But now we're going to see the suitability of the mediator. And two things are going to stand out in this paragraph. First of all, Christ's personal impeccability. And secondly, his divine investiture. Or if you want to use installment as another I word, you could do that. The Lord Jesus in his human nature, thus united to the divine, see also paragraph two, in the person of the Son, was sanctified and anointed with the Holy Spirit above measure, having in him all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That's just Colossians 2, 3. In whom it pleased the Father that all fullness should dwell in him bodily, Colossians 1, And to the end that being holy, harmless, undefiled, and full of grace and truth, he might be thoroughly furnished to execute the office of mediator in surety, which obviously took not upon himself, but was thereunto called by the Father, who also put all power and judgment in his hand and gave him commandment to execute the same. Like I said, two things, his impeccability and his investiture. Impeccability is referring to his perfection in his person. He's impeccable. It's to say that the Lord Jesus Christ, because of the union of his divine and human natures, it's not merely that he did not sin, it's that he cannot sin, such that the work of his, such that his mediating work cannot fail. Though he's tempted in every way as you and I are, there can never be a rupture between the human and the divine nature of Christ such that he would be truly, genuinely tempted to sin such that he would have any sinful or disordered thought, emotion, or affection. It is impossible. He is impeccable in his person, though yet truly man. And it's for this reason that he's fully furnished to execute the office of mediator and surety. Having been anointed by the Holy Spirit above, the Holy Spirit empowering him to live the very life. By the way, isn't that crazy? Oftentimes, when we think about Christ's earthly life, we usually think that all the crazy stuff that he does, the miracles that he performs, is the result of his divine nature working through his human nature. But in reality, as John, the Apostle John describes in John 3, it's because he was anointed with the Spirit beyond measure. The very same Spirit who was the very power of God in creation, is the very power of Christ in performing miracles, the very power of Christ to raise himself from the dead. It's the very power of Christ whereby he is able to enjoy unbroken communion with the Father, even while experiencing all of the common infirmities that we experience as humans. And so all that he was able to do is by 
is by the power of the Holy Spirit given to him without measure. And as a result, he is impeccable in his person. He is perfectly suited to fulfill these roles. Since his deity was united to his humanity in the one person, it was impossible for him to sin. And that even though his temptations were real, yet he remained sinless. And because of that, we have hope. A sympathetic Savior who sits forever at the right hand of God making intercession for us. But we notice here that the office that he took upon himself in summarizing what we saw earlier in the chapter, that threefold office, it was one that he was called into by the Father. And that's setting us up for the following paragraphs. Because his mediating work is ultimately going to be a work of obedience. A work of obedience to the Father. Look at paragraph 4. The office the Lord Jesus did most willingly undertake, which that, he did might, which that he might discharge, he was made under the law, he did perfectly fulfill it, and underwent the punishment due to us, which we should have borne and suffered, being made sin and a curse for us, enduring most grievous sorrows in his soul and most painful sufferings in his body, was crucified and died. And he remained in the state of the dead and yet saw no corruption. On third day he arose from the dead with the same body in which he suffered, which he also ascended to heaven. And there he sits at the right hand of the Father, making intercession, and shall return to judge men and angels at the end of the world. Christ's ministry has two stages, humiliation and exaltation. We see both of those summarized here in paragraph four. We see his humiliation in the first half of the paragraph, and we consider his exaltation in the second half of the paragraph, beginning with, on the third day he arose. And as we consider each one of these, we need to just go ahead and keep in our minds that it's setting us up for the paragraphs that follow, the logic of the chapter. In the first half of the paragraph concerning his humiliation, two specific things stand out. That is Christ's active obedience and his passive obedience. His active obedience is seen in that phrase that he was made under the law, Galatians 4.4, born under the law, born of a woman, and did perfectly fulfill it. He is all righteousness, perfectly obedient. And so in all of these ways, he was perfectly obedient to the law of God. That he was born under the law and unlike Israel and unlike all of mankind everywhere, he submitted himself to the Father and all of the Father's commands. And all of God's commands, he actively obeyed. That's what's meant by active obedience. It was a positive obedience to the positive commands. That he did everything that God commanded him to do. That he abstained from everything God commanded him to abstain from. And he did not violate a single jot or tittle of any command that God had ever made. He actively obeyed the Father in every way. But secondly... It refers here not only to his active obedience, but also his passive obedience. Now, when we're talking about passive obedience, what we're not talking about is an obedience that's done to him. So if we talk about, for instance, in, in the English language, the passive voice is an action being performed on the subject. That's not what we mean by passive here. 
it's taken from the Latin term that, that we would get the word passion from, the suffering of Christ. It's his suffering obedience or his obedience in suffering to the point of death. Philippians chapter 2, he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And that's what's summarized here. He underwent the punishment due to us. We deserved it. We should have borne it. We should have suffered it. But he was made a sin and a curse for us. He endured the most grievous sorrows in his soul and the most painful sufferings in his body. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a cross. And so not only did he fulfill all righteousness, but he exhausted every curse of God against God's elect under the law. And so it speaks here of his, in his humiliation, both of his active obedience and of his passive obedience. And because of his perfect obedience, he was vindicated on the third day. He was raised from the dead with the very same body with which he suffered, with which he also ascended into heaven where he now intercedes for us as the true God-man and there sits at the right hand of the Father making intercession. And one day we'll return to judge men and angels at the end of the world. Look at Philippians chapter 2. It's a perfect description of what's being summarized here. Of both the humiliation and the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 2. Paul gives the command in verse 5, have this mind or attitude among yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to, but he emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Can you see the descent from verses 6 to 9? It just gets lower and lower and lower. We see Christ's humiliation. But look at what happens in verse 9. Therefore, because of his active and passive obedience in his humiliation, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. We have humiliation, we have exaltation, the twofold state of his mediating work, as we see it summarized here in paragraph four. Well, moving on, paragraph five. Now we're going to see not only his work accomplished, that's what we just saw in the fourth paragraph, but now in paragraph five, we see his work accepted, his Godward success, if you were. 
The Lord Jesus, by his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself, which through the eternal spirit once offered up to God, has fully satisfied the justice of God, procured reconciliation, and purchased an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for all those whom the Father has given unto him. Look at that last phrase, all those whom the Father has given unto him. What does that phrase bring to mind? It's the covenant of redemption. This paragraph is summarizing Christ's obedience to the Father in the context of that covenant, whereby he fulfilled all conditions, merited all blessings and benefits that he would bestow on all of God's elect, those whom God gives him in the context of the covenant of grace. And he's done three things. Look at the language here. In terms of his work toward God, he has, first of all, satisfied the justice of God. It's the language of propitiation. Not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation, a wrath-bearing, wrath-satisfying substitute for us. But he's, secondly, he's procured reconciliation. The Westminster Confession here uses the language of purchased, but here the the writers use the language of procured. That language means to bring about by care or great pain the winning over of a person to one side, an enemy to become a friend, that we have been reconciled to God. Romans 5.1. Look at this, Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so when you see peace with God language, that's reconciliation language. That we've gone from being enemies to now being adopted into his family. And that's what he says down in verse 10. For if while we were enemies, while we had enmity against God, and while God possessed enmity against us because of our condemnation in Adam, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. We have died with Christ and we will live with him. We have been reconciled to God in Christ. Thirdly, it says here that he has purchased for us an everlasting inheritance. All that the father promised to the son, the son now shares with those whom the father has given him. That we are, Paul writes in Romans 8, fellow heirs with Christ. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, that there is stored up for us an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled in Christ. All for us. And so the confession here in paragraph 5 is doubling down on Christ's active obedience. This is what he has merited for us by virtue of his righteousness. It's what he's purchased and procured for us. That salvation comes not merely by his substitutionary death, but it comes by his whole life and his death to bring us the salvation that's described here and summarized in the chapters that follow. So we see here where his work accepted. Now in paragraph six, we see his work anticipated. 
that although the price of redemption was not actually paid by Christ until after his incarnation, yet the virtue, efficacy, and benefit thereof were communicated to the elect in all ages successfully, successively from the beginning of the world in and by those promises, types, and sacrifices wherein he was revealed and signified to be the seed which would bruise the serpent's head and the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, being the same yesterday and today and forever. This is just raising the question that Paul discusses in, in Romans chapter 4. When we say that Abraham was justified by faith, what do we mean? What do we mean? When we say that Abraham was justified, do we mean that he was justified the same way that we're justified? And if it's by faith, what is the object of his faith? And is it the same object of our faith? The confession says yes. Here we see that it says until after his incarnation, the elect in all ages, that there is an eternal perspective to Christ's historical work. That here in paragraph 6, what we have is the history of redemption. Think farther steps from chapter 7. The history of redemption being understood in light of the covenant of redemption, paragraph 1. Since Christ's redeeming work is accomplished at a specific time in history. Well, then one might naturally ask then, how are the benefits applied then to those who lived prior to the incarnation? And the answer here is threefold. Number one, Christ genuinely in time, space, and history in the incarnation paid, quote, the price of redemption. That the accomplishment of redemption, the meriting of all of the benefits and blessings of salvation is the result of the historical atoning death of Christ. But secondly, according to God's purpose or his decree, quote, the virtue, efficacy, and benefit of the work were committed to the elect from the beginning of the world by means of revelation, specifically promises, types, and sacrifices. That's the language of chapter 7, paragraph 3 on the covenant. He is further revealed. Who's revealed? Not merely promises that would one day be fulfilled in Christ. This is what we talked about last week. Not ambiguous promises. Abraham was not justified because he had faith that God would give him the land of Canaan. He was justified because he saw Christ's day and he rejoiced. That he saw something in that Melchizedekian type. And he knew something of a mediator to come. Abraham was saved by faith in Christ as he was revealed in the types and the shadows and the promises. And Christ was revealed all through and further steps in the Old Testament through these various ways. And so according to God's purpose... By faith in Christ, revealed in the promises, types, and sacrifices, Old Testament saints enjoy then the benefits and the blessings of the redeeming work that Christ would accomplish in history, retroactively applied to all saints at all times. And then thirdly and finally, because Jesus Christ is fully God and God is unchanging, his promise, this is what it says here, being the same yesterday, today, and forever, Hebrews 13, 8, his promises are as good as his accomplishment. It's to say, all those promises in the old covenant that the saints 
or in the Old Testament that the saints believed, you can just take it to the bank. The promise is as good as the fulfillment because the Lord Jesus Christ never changes. Isn't that good news? God has always only had one people. He's had one plan. He's had one gospel progressively revealed across redemptive history according to the covenant that he made with his son before the foundation of the world. And all those who are saved by faith in Christ enjoy the blessings and the benefits won by Christ in history through his incarnation. So we see his work anticipated. Now in paragraph seven, we see his work attributed. And I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time here, but we can talk about it in discussion time if that would be helpful. Christ in the work of mediation acts according to both natures. Remember, it's undivided. By each nature doing that which is proper to itself. Yet by reason of the unity of the person, that which is proper to one nature is sometimes in Scripture attributed to the person denominated by the other nature. You see those two proof texts down at the bottom, John 3.13, Acts 20.28. Here's the question. The unity of the person of Jesus Christ that we just saw summarized in the second paragraph explains then how John can say in John 3.13, the Son of Man descended from heaven. What? Like, a man was in heaven and then came here? The son, Like, what do we mean by that? But it also helps us to make sense then of Paul's words in Acts 20, 28, that God obtained the church with his own blood. Wait, God bleeds? How do we make sense of that? So does God have a body? Can God suffer? Is he passable after all? Well, if we come to the Bible and we read it with wooden literal lenses, a kind of hyper-biblicist lens, then we're going to drift into all kinds of errors. And so what paragraph 7 is doing is giving us a category to approach those kinds of passages and to make sense of them in light of the unity of the person of Jesus Christ, two natures in one person. And so I'm going to summarize it this way. We can circle back a little bit later. This whole paragraph, what it's doing is summarizing a Christological doctrine called the communication of properties. And as I said, it gives us a category for thinking about the unity of the two natures in Christ's person without falling into errors or ditches on either side. Paragraph 8. Now we see his work applied. If paragraph 5 refers to Christ's Godward success, then paragraph 8 is referring to his manward success. It speaks about the application of Christ's work of redemption to God's elect. And here I want you to notice that implicit in the paragraph as I read through it is the threefold office, the work of a prophet, the work of a priest, and the work of a king. Read with me because paragraph 8 is going to set the table for the explicit discussion on the threefold office in paragraphs 9 and 10. To all those for whom Christ has obtained eternal redemption, he does certainly and effectually apply and communicate the same, making intercession for them, uniting them to himself by his spirit, revealing to them in and by his word the mystery of salvation, persuading them to believe and obey, governing their hearts by his word and spirit, and overcoming all their enemies by his almighty power and wisdom. In such a manner and ways as are most consonant to his wonderful and unsearchable dispensation and, of, and all of free and absolute grace. 
without any condition foreseen, and then to procure it. What was Christ's work toward us as prophet, priest, and king? We saw what his work to God was in paragraph 5, but now we see what was his work to us? Well, we see that in his prophetic work, he reveals to us the mystery of salvation and persuades us to believe and obey. That as our king, he governs our hearts and he overcomes our enemies. And as our priests, he applies and he communicates and he, the benefits of, of redemption and he makes intercession for us. Now, it doesn't use the language of priest and prophet and king. It's describing them here so that we would get a taste of, of his posture toward us in his ministry, of what he is to us, and then applies the label that we might treasure it even more. And that's what we see here. This redemption springing from a free and absolute grace given to us by Christ, who is our prophet, our priest, and king. And the last two paragraphs concern that threefold office, the office of mediator. It says here, the office of mediator between God and man, in paragraph 9, is proper only to Christ, who's the prophet, priest, and king of the church of God. And may not either, in whole or any part thereof, be transferred from him to any other. Here in paragraph 9, it's, ex it's asserting the exclusive position of Christ. Why is it here? It's here specifically because of Roman Catholic doctrine. That according to Roman Catholic doctrine, the Pope sets him up as a mediator between God and man, functioning as it were as man's prophet, priest, and king, interceding between man and God and between God and man. And in so doing, now we understand from paragraph 9 what is informing the later controversial statement in the confession on the Christ or on the Pope being called the Antichrist. Look at chapter 26, verse 4. The Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the church, in whom, by the appointment of the Father, all power for the calling, institution, order, or government of the church is invested in a supreme and sovereign manner. Oh, that sounds very chapter 80-ish. Not 80, not chapter 80, chapter 8-ish. You know what I'm saying. Neither can the Pope of Rome in any sense be head thereof, but is that Antichrist. In other words, he has set himself against Christ, the man of sin and the son of perdition that exalts himself in the church against Christ. Now, is he the Antichrist? They're not thinking like modern-day dispensationalists. And we could take scruples with a number of things, perhaps, in this, in this paragraph. But the main point to be made is that any man that assumes for himself a mediatorial office that belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ alone, such that access to God and revelation from God and forgiveness from God cannot be had apart from that man, that man is anti-Christ. His threefold office can be given to no other man. Why? Because according to the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. There can be no other. And that's what paragraph 9 is asserting unapologetically. In the same way, well, we'll get 
I'm going to skip that application for the sake of time. Finally, paragraph 10. We see not only the exclusivity of his offices, but we see its necessity. The number and the order of offices is necessary, for in respect of our ignorance, we stand in need of his prophetic office. And in respect of our alienation from God and imperfection of the best of our services, we need his priestly office to reconcile us and to present us acceptable unto God. And in respect to our averseness and utter inability to return to God and for our rescue and security from our spiritual adversaries, we need his kingly office to convince, subdue, draw, uphold, deliver, and preserve us to his heavenly kingdom. So here we have the continuation of the theme of the threefold office of Christ. And I want you to notice how this whole paragraph ends because it's so sweet that each of Christ's offices corresponds to the sinner's greatest need. That because you and I are ignorant of God and his will for salvation, because in a Romans 1 sense, we have dead in our sins suppressed the very knowledge of God revealed in creation. We need to be taught by a perfect prophet. Hebrews 1, but in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son. No higher or further revelation is needed to know who God is and what his will is for salvation in Christ than what we find in the Lord Jesus Christ. But notice, secondly, because you and I are alienated from God because of our sin, because we are his enemies, we need to be reconciled by the bloody offering of a perfect priest. We considered that week after week after week in our study in Hebrews this last year. And that because of our total inability, we saw that in paragraph 6 on sin. Because of our total inability, we are slaves to sin. That we are under the dominion of Satan, who is the ruler of this world and of death, until our king conquers our wills. Until he rescues us from the dominion of darkness and we are transferred into his own kingdom. And until he secures us in his kingdom forever. Why is it necessary to think about the Lord Jesus Christ, both God and man in one person, fulfilling as mediator this threefold office of prophet, priest, and king, because each one of those offices meets the greatest needs of a sinner? to accomplish our salvation. Robert Murray Machane said this. Perhaps this chapter might be helpful to us in this regard. He said, Learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely. Such infinite majesty, and yet such meekness and grace. And all for sinners, even the chief. Live much in the smiles of God. Bask in his beams. Feel his all-seeing eyes settled on you in love. And repose in his almighty arms. Let your soul be filled with a heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and the excellency of Christ and all that is in him. Let me pray.